One of the reasons we love classical Christian education is because it is the restoration of the way just about everyone in the West was educated up until about 100 years ago. You see, at the turn of the century, significant changes took place that led to where we are today, not only in education, but even further downstream throughout our culture. David Goodwin joins us to share from his brand new book, The Battle for the American Mind, which is the top of the New York Times bestsellers list after just a month on the market. David winsomely explains a number of these pivotal moments that forever changed American schools, which all parents and educators need to be aware of, and that will honestly inspire you to be even more grateful and engaged in this amazing generation-shaping process that we call classical Christian education. Stay tuned for this episode of Basecamp Live. Mountains, we all face them as we seek to influence the next generation. Get equipped to conquer the challenges, summit the peak, and shape exceptionally thoughtful, compassionate, and flourishing human beings. We call it Ancient Future Education for Raising the Next Generation. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Now your host, Davies Owens. Hey, Basecamp Live listeners, Davies Owens here. What a joy and a privilege to meet so many of you in person at the SCL and then ACCS conferences this summer in Dallas, Texas. Uh, What a joy just to hear your story. So many of you came up and just recounted your journey into classical Christian education. In fact, I was so inspired, I've decided to bring back something we did a few years ago on Basecamp Live called the Climbers Series. Again, in this analogy that we're all climbing to the top of Mount Everest, raising the next generation, and we stop along the way at base camps and get encouraged and recharged. But we do this climbing with others. We are in a, in a shared experience with other folks that are discovering what we've discovered, the impact of classical Christian education on the next generation. You know, in this interview, we talked to David Goodwin, who I've known for almost two decades. David has been instrumental in my own discovery of what it really means to be a person who supports classical Christian education. Uh, David was instrumental in my moving a decade ago from Atlanta to Idaho and joining the Ambrose School. And over the years, I've journeyed with him as he's done this research of what went wrong 100 years ago in American education. And he's helped me to see that, you know, the problem is so much deeper than just, well, prayer was taken out of school. As David has spent hours digging through dusty stacks of old books and magazines, he's unearthed a shocking set of discoveries that have really been there the whole time, but few were willing to see. It just took, it took time exposing them and revealing them to us. I've had the privilege of reading David's earliest manuscripts, and I know that a good bit of my own understanding and deep appreciation for classical Christian education has come from David's revealed research. And what he discovers is absolutely formative um, in helping us as educators and parents know what is this world that, that we're in? What is this current, if you will, that we're swimming in called education in America today. It's really important because when education as paideia, as David will explain, is in the right hands, it can form a young person to love what God loves. In the wrong hands, it can deeply mold a young person to the political and emotional agendas of the modern world in a way that nothing else can. And what David reveals isn't some hyped up conspiracy theory of a, of a liberal takeover of schools, but something even more intentional with more than a century in the works. And as I've said before, I was three years as a head of school before I really understood the deep and profound nature of what we're doing at schools as being way more than just reading, writing, and arithmetic in a better, more classical way with Christianity woven into it. Um, We are 
at the forefront right now of a revival that's been going on about 40 years, and it's important to understand where we've been and the current cultural environment that we're in. David Goodwin's been on Basecamp Live before. He's the president of the ACCS, and prior to that, he was the head of school at the Ambrose School in Boise, and he began his career working in the world of technology and marketing for Hewlett-Packard. A few years ago, David connected with Pete Hegseth at Fox News, which David explains in detail how this interview came about, both why the partnership with Fox and the advantages in terms of exposure that it is giving to our movement. He also shares the remarkable story of Pete's own awakening as to the real depth of education, causing Pete to personally reevaluate his own uh, education that he's giving his children. He's in the process of moving to a different town just to align with the classical Christian school. It's really a remarkable story. These guys together came out in January with a five-part documentary called The Miseducation of America. It's available on the Fox Nation platform and now in book form, which of course we always prefer the book, which was just released last month and has been on the top of New York Times bestseller list. Uh, I hope you'll find this interview engaging and for sure get a copy of the book as you want to dig deeper into David's research. Here now is my interview with David Goodwin. All right. Well, David Goodwin, welcome to Basecamp Live. Well, welcome to <laughs> Repairing the Ruins. It's we are, as people can probably tell, we are actually live here in Dallas at the Repairing the Ruins conference, ACCS's biggest conference ever, right? Yeah, it's great to be back with you, Davies. I we used to do a little bit more of this than we get to do well, nowadays. And what so. people don't fully I will, just quickly because it's got to be told. I mean, first of all, I mean, you have been a, a great friend for going on almost two decades. I think we first met maybe yeah. what at a campfire or something at an SCL event mm-hmm. 17 years yep. ago and you convinced me to move from Atlanta to Idaho which is, was a great decision 10 years ago came out there and joined you and then you ended up on the, as president of the ACCS and um, and this book that we're going to talk about I, you've let me in early as in like 10 years ago I think I had like yeah. you know version 2.0 or something of it and it went through 35 versions 35 iterations like that, yeah. and it was always like what are we what, what when is this book going to be written David I think I think you were my biggest uh, guilt factor every time we got <laughs> near each other that's my great <laughs> claim to fame I'm the guilt no but but in all seriousness you have you have done a uh, certainly for me an incredible job helping me understand the significance of as we'll get into this this uh, of k-12 classical Christian education that it's so much more than just a more moral or a better reading writing arithmetic process it's it's actually human soul formation at the deepest level and 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 in the right hands that's that will raise up kingdom folks in the wrong hands that can destroy our country, which is in our world, which is kind of what you're looking right. at. So, right. so, so the book itself, battle for the American mind. Did I just see so this just, the book just came out like June 14th. It came out and, um, you, you know what it is really Davies, you can appreciate this. I think as much as, as anyone is that for those of us inside the movement, any part of the story that comes out, whether it's about Paideia or about the progressive education takeover in the early part of the 20th century, or John Dewey. We know all the players, we know the, the stage, we know the play, we know it well. So we can have conversations about it, but what I kept finding were that anybody who was a little bit new to classical education, the narrative wasn't there. There was no sort of overarching narrative. And because of that, nobody, it, it took people a long time to get next to classical education. So this book was about shortening that journey and making it just a one book read to, mm. to get up to speed and then of course it's such a deep subject you can't ever 
probe the, be- right. the depths of it. Right. Well, and I think what the book book is doing is it's moving us from just again perhaps just an understanding that classical Christian education is a better education because our kids learn to think and they learn virtue. I mean, that's what you hear at open houses. But again, that the, the depth of Paideia in terms of its ability to shape and form. Um, but let's, before we get into all that, again, just sort of, so the book, you, you're, New York Times. Uh, yeah, number one on the New York, that, New York Times that is, when it released. That's, that's significant. Yeah, I and was shocked by that. that. That's a long way from your manuscript, um, yeah, yeah. your days. So talk a little bit about, and then uh, the, the video that I think came out in January, the five-part series that Fox right. did, The Miseducation of America, and I can't recommend that enough to people that have not seen it. How do people see the, the video? This well, part? yeah, and the story's important to tell because yeah. obviously if people look at the book and they say, uh, my name's on it, but Pete Hegseth of Fox News' his name is uh, the, the prominent name on it. And the reason for that is we wanted to get the story out as widely as we could. And uh, Pete called me two years ago. Uh, it's not unusual for me to get calls on classical education because the association obviously is a mouthpiece for that. Um, we had a conversation, and I think he was kind of angling towards sort of an American, uh, you know, uh, patriotic form of education, and I kind of made some corrective, uh, you know, suggestions to him and sent him some parts of the manuscript that you saw years ago. And he read these things and kept coming back with questions. You mean to tell me this? You mean to say that? And so pretty soon when he got the idea that there was a whole story under this, he wanted to produce something on Fox that would explain it. And that's what the miseducation of America was. Yeah, which is, again, um, an extraordinary platform. And I know maybe just make the comment here because some people may be very big fans of Fox. Others are maybe more leery of Fox. But you, know, you, you did a blog post, I think, recently just kind of said, look, we have our goal is to get classical Christian education out to the masses. And, right. And I remember for years, you and I said, wouldn't it be amazing if, if at least every class, every evangelical parent at least knew of classical Christian to even formulate an opinion? Right. So you saw this as a way to get the word out, regardless of the source in some ways, I guess. Yeah, I yeah. think on my sub stack, I have a little piece on that called uh, Fox News Fender, Friend or Foe. And in it, I describe all of the many, and I won't go into them here, the many Christian examples, uh, you know, probably the most prominent and knowledgeable from the Bible is the uh, speech of Paul on Mars Hill. I mean, that was a situation where he was invited into the conversation by the leading voices of the time. And he went there and he spoke the truth, and that was the beginning of uh, the Greek uh, return, or the, the Greek yeah. uh, draw to Christ. And so I think um, that was part of what I wrote. I also, you know, Fox has been good. We did a big piece you may remember two three years ago with Christianity Today mm-hmm. and I have to say um, they took uh, made up their own title which was totally off base of what the article was on saying uh, talking about elite elite homeschoolers and we aren't homeschoolers and I, I hope right. we're not elitist right um, we were treated very fairly by Fox um, mm-hmm. and that's all I can ask for yeah and they obviously have a, an impressive it's funny to me the number of people of late that have been emailing me saying, have you, have you seen this book that's out that uh, is on classical Christian education by David Goodwin? and mm-hmm. Pete? Yeah, I've heard of the book. Um, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> they used to say Pete Hegseth well, and David Goodwin. I, I, I liked it with David, but <laughs> but clearly, uh, and, and to that point, it, and Pete's sounds like it's become a, a good friend. Pete's um, really 
gone through a bit of a transformation himself. I mean, just in reading yes. your book, you, I think that's worth mentioning here. Well, and in, in just, um, you know, he's a, he's a deep guy. Um, you may not think that guys on, on Fox would be that way. You think their personalities, but I mean, he's, he's a pretty deep guy and he kept asking questions until he got to the bottom of it. Now he can speak to this. I mean, if anybody's seen him recently on Fox or on any of, you know, just go on YouTube and see what he says yeah. about this book. He's he's uh, definitely he's not uh, an author who is in name only. He's right. he participated in a lot of the writing of the book. He actually made it much more readable, I think, than the way I had it. So, but I think, but get, in terms of his own personal journey, because like you said, he started out, I think, right. maybe more of just conservative American patriotism type of thing, and then in, in reading of the book, discovered what we're going to be talking about, which is this incredibly powerful force of, of paideia of how he shaped children and it's caused him apparently to even re reevaluate his education of his own children yeah they're moving to a classical christian yeah. school with all the kids yeah i actually was talking to a head of school just an hour ago who was saying uh yeah pete basically went on this pilgrimage to uh, maybe a, a dozen classical christian schools around the country mm -hmm. saying okay we are reorienting our entire family now yep. because this is so important so well done on just opening opening even pete's eyes on this process and you know really david it also, we're going to get into so many things to talk about, but I think about even Basecamp, this <clears throat> podcast, earliest DNA was the two of us there at the Ambrose Library, which is going on probably eight years ago, mm -hmm. just trying to figure out how do we awaken parents to the deeper understanding of what is classical Christian. Of course, back then you had to get childcare and drive down the building and the, and the families that showed up were usually the ones that already kind of knew what was going on. And, and so this became a great platform to get the idea out. But at core, what you and I began with in conversations eight, ten years ago, really has culminated in this book. So, just for those who are not familiar with kind of what's the basic premise of the book? I mean, what is it? You know, why has why has miseducation, um, you know, been the nature of, of Western education for the last hundred years? Because I think most of us think that if we could just go back to the '50s and get the apple back on the teacher's desk and say a few prayers, it would all be great. It's far more complicated than that. Well, it's a very. I think it, it's a very readable book because it's it's more of a story than it is a nonfiction book. It yeah. is a, a true story. But it begins with the 2,000-year um, history of classical education that was ubiquitous until the turn of the 20th century. And then in 1915, uh, in I think around chapter 3, it, it moves into the progressives' deliberate and what we had uncovered through the research in the New Republic and the progressive magazines was the whole dialogue. I mean, early, early on in the movement, in the progressive movement, um, they were not as you know they weren't as widespread. So they they spoke rather candidly in their magazines, and they told us what they were going to do. So, and so, so just to, so when you say progressives, like uh, who are who who are they? Like I mean, is this like the Shriners Club that's like gone bad? I mean, who are the progressives? Yeah, the progressives, you know, with capital P, was a political movement in the early part of the 20th century. It was pretty well defined. I mean, it was mostly atheistic socialists who were trying in the cities. Uh, John Dewey being a famous one, uh, the many others, I mean, you can't, the Humanist Society mm -hmm. was formed at the time. So you've got you, all the work, you know, coming out of the socialist movement, and then you had a fusion in of the mainstream church leaders. Um, these are the liberal side of the church in the early part of the 20th century. And so uh, those leaders um, combined with uh, these socialists uh, turned into the progressive movement. It was, it was a pretty defined 
force. And we've all read about the progressives, I think, in your history books in high school, if you remember. Mm -hmm. They're credited with things like ending child labor and getting the minimum wage put in place, setting an 80-hour workday. Those are the things that they were, you know, that I expected. I mean, the story I always tell is when I went to the library to find this one phrase that was from an educational article in 1915 where the progressives said that they wanted to uh, control the plasticity of the child mm. and not leave that in the hands of the parents. I wanted to know what they were thinking, and I thought I'd be able to find this article inside of just a couple of minutes. Uh, how many education uh, pieces, if, if, if I was, you know, working off of my high school education, I didn't believe the progressives were major, you know, their major thing was education. Of course, right. I knew they were credited with the formation of America's system, but it turned out every every issue had education in it, and it was like just an opening Pandora's box to see what right. they were up to. Because again, I think that it, for many listening, and I, again, I've mentioned my own kind of uh, awakening, sounds like Pete went one, through one too, that again, education was always, I think, r- r- generally seen as a necessary experience for every child to, to learn reading, writing, arithmetic, and if you could get in a Christian school, then you had the overlay of Christianity. But the, but the deepest level, we're forming... Um, the very fiber of, of what a, 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 how the child sees the world and sees themselves. I mean, it's this paideia. So maybe just yeah. explain what is this million-dollar word. Well, and this is the interesting thing, is the word rarely comes up in the progressors because they were all educated classically because they were educated prior to 1900. And their work was... Um, uh, you know, if you went to college at that time, you studied Greek and uh, Greek and uh, Latin because those were the entrance exams to get into college. So they all knew the word paideia. It's a Greek word. There's no translation into the English. It's often translated education, training, instruction, fear, admonition. There's right. a lot of different words. Um, but it's, an, it's a, a concept that is very hard to get next to. Uh, the guy who wrote the book on it wrote four books on it, actually. Um, it's so complicated. Because it really basically comes down to uh, the Greeks' observation that kids always grew up to be like their parents. They always grew up to be like their tribe. And so why was that? Because if you pulled a kid out of one tribe and put him in another tribe, he would grow up to be like that tribe, not the other one, not the previous one. And that's where they identified paideia, that this is a set of deeply seated affections and assumptions that lay in the soul and they're formed in the very early years. Right. And... um, when they discovered that, the Greeks then intentionally designed a system that would create a liberated or a free citizen, and that was called the, you know, the, the Christian paideia. Yeah, right? the yeah. Christian paideia right. eventually became the Christian paideia, and that was the basis of our founding as a nation right. in America was this paideia. The progressives in 1900 decided that was in their way because free thinkers would not buy into their concept of Marxism. And now what you see in our book is by the end of the book, you've carried through a a steady line all the way from those events in 1915 to critical race theory, gender uh, separation of, you know, state your genders, uh, drag, drag queen story hours. These were all architected. They weren't, they didn't drop out of the sky today. Right. And I think that's the, that's what's so intriguing and scary at the same time is it's, I think maybe for many of us, we think of progressives as just, well, these are just people that have more liberal views and, you know, welcome to our, our world of, uh, of, uh, of countering opinions. But what you're describing and you've done an amazing job documenting historically. So again, this isn't just, you know, hearsay. This is very documented. You can go and look at all of these twists and turns, but it's, it's really, um, 
it's scary because it was an intentional effort, a coordinated takeover, as you describe it in the book. So, I mean, I can, I, so were there moments in the early part of the 20th century in smoke-filled rooms with doors locked where they said, okay, we're going to, we're going to do this thing and we're going to take it over and here's the systematic way we're going to do it. I mean, it sounds like it was literally at that level of intentionality. Yes, and when the debates occurred as to how to do it, how to get religion out of the classroom so that they could control the paideia of the students, um, they were done in public because they didn't know anybody would care and no one really did and that's why no one knows about this. Um, when I read the original articles, I thought, this is just crazy. Nobody ever wrote anything about this. Nobody's really synthesized this. And I, I started to look, and it didn't take me very long to find a guy by the name of Lawrence Kremen who wrote the book on this topic. He's a Columbia professor, very well regarded, uh, won a Pulitzer Prize for his work on American education, and he states the thesis very clearly yeah. that the progressives targeted the fundamental, um, the fundamental instrument, I think he called it, of politics and culture and society mm. when they took over the school system because they knew they could control the American paideia and he writes it that way it's yeah. called the American paideia so as an example we're going to go to a break but I know you know you've talked before about the 1919 prohibition as an example of, of the use of curriculum in the in the grammar schools even to begin to formulate a particular way to view in this case alcohol which then mm -hmm. led to change in legislation so I mean yeah, this that is was, not a new idea, right? No, it was just a bizarre little uh, yeah. uh, side story, which yeah. is, I, you know, I think anybody who's ever looked at the 18th Amendment has to say, now, this is weird. It's, you know, in all the amendments of the U.S. Constitution, this is one that's really weird. It's the most restrictive and affects daily life in America, right. but it just crops up out of nowhere. And it didn't crop up out of nowhere. They started teaching in 1875. A, an anti-alcohol curriculum in the third grade and they taught it consistently over the course of 20 years and those kids became the generation that voted yeah. for the yeah. um, prohibition. And, I, and you see it repeated. I mean, I've been to Rwanda four times, you and I've talked about before, if you go to the Genocide Museum there in Kigali, the first display cabinet talks about, well, how did genocide happen? Why were a million people slaughtered in 100 days? And they say it's the schools, and they showed copies of the textbooks where embedded in those textbooks were basically a indoctrination that this, these Tutsis are the ones that are causing this problem, therefore forget rid of them, you get your farmland back. So again, the power of curriculum of school mm -hmm. is obviously, again, what the progressives knew. If you, yeah, and, and I think yeah. the book really brings out the fact that um, that's not really the worst of it that the indoctrination of the kids isn't the worst of it. It's the loss of the Western Christian paideia, and maybe, I don't know if we're up Let, against a break, but Let's we'll take come a break, because, yeah, leave us on that cliffhanger, so that's not the worst of it. Um, I, yeah, let's take a break. We'll be right back with David Goodwin. Hey there, I'm Jeremy Tate, founder of the Classic Learning Test, or CLT. Here at CLT, we are big fans of the Basecamp Live podcast, and we're excited to be joining Basecamp in the renewal for classical education. In addition to our beautiful suite of assessments for grades 7 through 12 and soon to be 3 through 6 as well, we have exciting new things going on at CLT. Please check out our new website where you can find out about the Anchored Podcast, the CLT Journal, and upcoming test dates. Head over to www.cltexam.com Basecamp. Again, that's www.cltexam.com slash Basecamp. 
Whether you're a homeschool parent, a teacher, or a school administrator, we would love to support you in your mission fulfilling a classical vision for education. So David, I want to jump right back into the conversation. Western Christian Paideia, unpack that for us. What's happened? Well, you know, this was fun in, in the course of this project, um, working with Pete. Um, I kept using the term Paideia or Western Christian Paideia, and he kept saying, okay, let's find better words. And um, we then moved to the publisher who did the book, and he said, let's find better words, because those are that's a mouthful. That's complicated. Sure. Uh, The term survived both the editors at Harper and uh, Fox because (laughs) when they, you know, when they spent time trying to figure out what it was, they Mm -hmm. realized there is no word for this. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's a it's an, you know, the the old adage, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it. Well, if if a word doesn't exist for something, does it really exist? Yeah. I mean, that's another question. If there's no word for it. So. Paideia was shoved uh, so deep down that it was lost in the memories of people. Mm. And um, there, that was exactly what the progressives wanted because it's long, it was the central ingredient in Western civilization. <clears throat> I gotta let that sink in. The central ingredient in Western civilization was Paideia. And the reason for that was <clears throat> no other culture had been self-conscious enough to say, our kids can be shaped in a different way than the way they've always been shaped, right? Because the, the world was full of <clears throat> leaders and empires who wanted the kids that were in there um, to worship their Asherah or mm-hmm. their Malak or whoever their god was so that the, they would retain power. Mm-hmm. And so they just conditioned them. And that's what indoctrination is. It's conditioning to believe in something just because. All right. The Greeks are the ones who came along and said, we can shape that paideia to think freely and independently. And they created something called liberal arts education, meaning freeing, mind-freeing education. Now we think of liberal as a right. political right. spectrum. So um, the Western Christian paideia is the paideia that descends first from the Greeks and then from uh, the, the Christians. Uh, it's been called in history the intersection of Athens and Jerusalem. And uh, the <clears throat> miseducation of America, what's interesting to me about that, is that this word that isn't known by most people, when you start watching that series, you'll see Robbie George at Princeton or Michael Knowles, the pretty well-known podcaster, um, or... Uh, Victor Davis Hanson, uh, all of them, when asked what paideia is, and this kind of set Pete back on his heels a little bit, they were like, they knew. <laughs> and they knew what this was, and they yep. knew how important it was, because anybody with you know, yep. Greek classical ex- understanding knows yep. what it is. It's the secret handshake. It, you, know, you were in the technology industry for years. I mean, I don't know if this is oversimplifying it. I'm always trying to figure out simple analogies, but it's basically, it's like, your laptop, I mean, it's the microprocessor of that unit. You can have a really cool keyboard and you can have all the great cameras, but if the microprocessor is programmed a certain way, or I mean, it's really more of a mm-hmm. software issue, if to really go with my analogy, but the point is, it's the heart of the whole child. I mean, if you control that chip and what's on that chip, you control everything. Yeah, and um, the analogy we use in the book is that it's this precious artifact to any, you know, to Western civilization yeah. Yeah. that's so precious it's put on a pressure plate an alarm system so no one was going to let this go anywhere it was under glass protected carefully curated inside America's schools prior to 1900 and long come the progressives and they have to get it off of 
off the pedestal. The only way they can do that is to replace it with something else that weighs about right. the same. And they replaced it with mm. what was called the American Paideia, or the idea that America as a nation could replace Christianity as the, uh, and this is where initially when Pete heard this, he goes, what? You mean, and I said, yeah, the Pledge of Allegiance was written originally by Francis Bellamy, a socialist, whose goal it was, was to replace the catechisms and the creeds of Christianity with a creed to America. And that's where it came from. And it, he read up on it and he looked into it and sure enough, it's all there. And so, so that's a really interesting idea of it. I think of a spy movie and he's switching out of the pedestal, the, you know, the bag of sand for, for the mm-hmm. diamond. Um, but, and so, you know, and that was probably, if you went back to the mid fifties, there was a lot of patriotism and it was pledging the flag and all the, which again, which was born in the twenties when they started right. their, <clears throat> But, but I think, okay, but the pro- that in and of itself isn't so much a problem as it, it just became a surrogate for what should have been there right. to begin with. And right. so if you're already in the business of switching out, now you go from a bag of sand on the pedestal to a bag of gravel. I mean, it right. sounds like they're just changing it out again. Well, once you change it to the American paideia, you, you don't have theology of America per se. Right. You don't have a Bible. You don't have inviolable truths. Um, we tried to make that out of the Constitution and other things, but we've seen how the left has been able to mm-hmm. change that to mean whatever they sure. want it to mean. Yeah. So basically then they shifted the American paideia from Americanism to cultural Marxism, and that's what the book talks about, is that that move right. started in about 1935 yeah. with the Frankfurt School coming to the United States, uh, and that is, we're, we're seeing the, the outworking of that in critical theory, critical so- gender so, I mean, in a sense, the progressives stole the keys to the kingdom. They replaced, you know, a heart of gold with a heart of sand or gravel. But if you look at, you know, this is part of the problem. You look at, you know, kids today, kids today, you know, it used to be they're just watching too much MTV. Or, you I know, love not, the air quotes. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's hard yeah. to see them on mm-hmm. my, we need to go to video here soon. Um, but the problem is, I mean, they've created a generation that can't read or write. They're, they're bored. They're aimless. Like, is that, is that really what they wanted or is that the byproduct of what they wanted and is it was this really intention and I, I, what they wanted was a sub, subdued populist mm-hmm. a populist and um i don't think they knew you know I, I i still think that in their sense of utopia they were hoping to build a utopian society and what was in the way was christianity because christianity puts limits on government it's like we can't we can't fix the problems of sin with government programs. Right. You just can't do that. And so um, they wanted to fix everything with this globalist sort of utopian view of what socialism could do. And um, when they pulled, when they, when they you know, stole the Western Christian paideia, they assumed they could replace it with self-freedom and sort of individual uh, sky's the limit kind of um, freedom mm-hmm. that they called freedom, which is really slave slavery to sin, is what it is, and we're seeing that now. People think that if they become a if they're a girl and they can become a boy, or if they're a boy and they can become a girl, or if they want to be they identify as black or yeah. whatever, that they'll be fulfilled. Yeah, and they're trying to find fulfillment through this total personal autonomy, and right. that's a product of humanism, right? Sure. That's what um, atheistic humanism is is the idea there is no God, you get to be your own God. Right. Let's see how that works out right. for you. Well, it's almost a return. I mean, if the liberal arts were liberating um, from the 
you know, the enslavement or the servile world that was typical in the Greeks. I mean, it seems like they're trying to return us. I mean, that's what they're doing. They want they want servants. They want servile right. people who are yes. unthinking. And, you know, as, as we heard this morning, uh, you know, whenever have we had an age where there's more <laughs> celebrated diversity externally, you see all the colors and everybody's celebrated for their multiple colored hair, their thing, their opinion, their thought. And yet it's absolute unity in terms of the core doctrine that that our culture operates on. I mean, it's it's intolerance actually towards everyone except that. Well, both the Greeks and the Christians realized that there was that freedom was really not what you might instinctively think. It isn't the freedom of an individual to be and do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. It's the freedom of the individual to conform to the trans, transcendent truth of right. truth, goodness, goodness, and beauty. So you had to subject yourself to these trans, transcendent truths. We don't want transcendent anymore. We want us, which is, I can be anything I want to be. There's nobody who can tell me what a boy is or what a woman is. But in, your, in, but in this idea of the progressive takeover, I mean, they're, they're telling us that we can do whatever we want to do, but they are absolutely committed to a very singular indoctrination of what they want. I mean, yes. I, mean I mean, this is kind of the scary big brother type yeah. of thing. It's in, it, it is doctrinaire. I mean, it, yeah. it comes from doctrine. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mean, what do you say to people that think, gosh, David, this is <laughs> scary and interesting, but it seems a little bit kind of conspiracy theory-ish. I mean, there's a lot of that out there. Like, okay, you know, again, it feels like Da Vinci Code. There have been people mm-hmm. in secret meetings that have scheming all these things. I mean, is it, do you see it? I mean, it, what do you say to that? Because I think that's... Well, it's in the book. Pete, Pete directly addresses <laughs> that and says, um, I know you know, get, I know some are going to see this as a conspiracy, but yeah. it's not. It's in the open. Mm-hmm. I mean, this would, this wasn't a conspiracy. This was a rolling revolution, and it's there for anyone to see. You don't. There's no debate <laughs> over the facts. It's not like there's a hidden uh, studio somewhere at right. Paramount where the moon landing was filmed, right? <laughs> Is that what happened, they, by the way? <laughs> I always wondered about it. There doesn't have to be any of that because okay. they wrote about it in their main publication. They said what they were trying right, to do. Right. We're taking you over. Yep. Well, I mean, it is like, I mean, you're using the battle motif. I mean, it's like, no, we really had a battle and you really lost, so get over it. I mean, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. And so. the truth of the matter is, and Davies, you and I have talked about this for years, we got to be as serious about the solution right. as they were about takeover. Right. Well, let's take a break because I think we wouldn't want to end here. Let's get back to what the book is, as you've, it's, you've described, it's been described as a field guide for, you know, recovering education. So we're not stuck here with the bad news. There's a, there's a way forward. So let's come back and talk about that. He's worked with families for more than 30 years as a licensed professional counselor and marriage family therapist. It's time for a quick encouragement on the best practices of raising the next generation. We call it a McCurdy moment. So Keith, they say parenting is one of the hardest things in the world. You know, that kids don't really come with owner's manuals. You kind of figure it out on the fly. When I think about my role as a dad, there were so many times just because I'm human, I got frustrated and I felt like I needed to address this behavior right now and I'm pretty fired up about it. And and the idea of like maybe going and cooling off while I cool off, like the, I've missed the moment to make it teachable for my child. What should I do with that? Should I pursue it or hold off or what do I do when I'm... Yes, yeah, fired up. <laughs> yeah, and I say we never get fired up with children. No, uh, you know, psychology does tell us that message. You always have to deal with stuff immediately to make the most impact. And when in reality, that's majorly flawed. Uh, when we are frustrated, I tell parents uh, a guideline is no parenting above a five. Think about a Richter scale. Yeah, and when you get to five, 
your emotions have now passed your brain functioning. Dishes are falling off the wall. Off the wall. And your brain, you're not thinking clearly. And we should not be parenting at a five or above when our emotions are hot. You know, we should not mistake that for energy to, to, do, to go do good parenting things. That's when we need to disengage. If it's a real problem, it will come up again. You'll have another bite at the apple. If you have to walk away 10 times to, until you're calm to come back and deal with your child about something, yeah. the lesson will be learned then. Yeah. You know, what we do when we engage above a five, we either diminish our word we damage the relationship. We come across verbally abusive. Uh, that one thing, if, if there's anything from conferences that I do, that I have parents respond back to me later, that one thing changes the environment in their home more than anything else. When they decide they're no longer going to parent when they are frustrated. And you wonder too, I, I mean, the rate of, st- the amount of stress just the average parent carries, the amount of responsibilities they have on them, how often is that that intense anger and frustration, really just more of a reflection of the 50 other things that have happened in their life that day. And so it's not even a, it's not even a representative anger towards whatever the kid just did. Right. And so the kid's even more confused. What in the world provoked that? Right. I had a mom in my office uh, last week and something had happened. The child was disrespectful and she was thinking about uh, pulling the cell phone and then got in a major altercation with their child wrestling match about getting a cell phone away from them. And number one, I said to her, Hey, if you'd have walked away and not dealt with that till the next morning, even if you needed to remove a cell phone, do it while they're sleeping. I mean, do it another time. <laughs> a little easier that way. If you would have walked away, what would have happened? And this mom said to me, well, nothing, because I was actually upset about something else. Exactly. That's the exact and, point. Yeah. And blew it all into that. Yeah. You know, we've got to give ourselves permission to take a break from parenting to yep. cool ourselves yep. before we engage. That's the whole go home and kick the dog. Poor dog didn't do a thing. Right. Is your boss at work. Right. Deal with that def- differently. Exactly. So. All right. Thanks, Keith. Got a question for Keith to answer on a future McCurdy moment? We'll send it to us at info at basecamplive.com and learn more about Keith McCurdy on the speaking page on the Basecamp Live website. All right, David, the moment we're all waiting for after we've heard some pretty discouraging news about the progressive takeover is how do we, uh, how do we, where do we go from here? Um, the idea of uh, parents radically reorienting their child's education is sort of what you're calling parents to just stop, rethink, re- reevaluate. And so what does the path forward look like? Well, it, it looks a lot like um, it has many times in Christian history. You know, we've got 2,000 years of Christian history, and you and I both know these stories. I suppose a lot of the listeners may not. But, you know, um, when... Europe fell back into darkness in what we call the Dark Ages, and there was no uh, educational structure left. Uh, Guys like Alfred the Great in around the 7th or 8th century restored it and uh, turned over to the monks uh, the challenge of educating the children liberally with the classical method. And they did that, and that formulated eventually all of Europe gave birth to the scholastic era, gave birth to the Renaissance. We would not be talking on microphones invented <laughs> in the West um, mm-hmm. uh, without that history. And so the problem with it is it took hundreds of years. And we've just got to be ready to be faithful. And I think Christians are called to faithfulness. It doesn't, you know, we often say in our in our movement, it, the cathedrals of Europe often took four or 500 years to right. build. Right. And yet people labored at them for four or 500 years. And now we look at them and are awestruck. Um, that's what that's what this is going to take educationally. So parents individually are going to have to step back, take 
classical Christian education seriously, whether it's homeschool, whether they're in a classical Christian school or in a shared instructional or, uh, you know, there's yeah. collaborative models. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different ways to do it. Nobody owns it. It's not a patented system. It's It was practiced for 2,000 years, so there's variation all over the place. I know you've done a lot of work, for example, with Charlotte Mason, which is one mm-hmm. kind of, I would call it a branch of, of classical education, and there's many others. Um, and so we're about, here at ACTS, we're about restoring all of them. We're, we're, whatever is good yeah. to them, beautiful, we're going to try and restore it, and I think calling parents into it. So what do you say to the parent and I can even think of at times talking to you know p- folks who are not immediately parents or just concerned believers in our country today saying we've got to do something maybe they're even a donor and they're looking at this saying I want to invest in something that's going to make a difference but they immediately stumble over this idea that this isn't a quick fix we can't just parachute into the public schools and change it all around and everybody's going to be great by you know the spring semester this is a 16,000 hour proposition. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. that true? Is it it's the long game? There's no way around it? Yes, I think it is. I think it is a long game. There's immediate benefits though for parents. I mean, mm-hmm. you you and I both had kids go through classical Christian schools. The way they are is very different because of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's that liberation is as a first generation advantage. You you get that just for uh, the 12 years you put into it. The um the bigger societal problems are not going to be solved in the short term. And this was the thing with, you know, dealing with Fox, they're always looking for a political fix Mm -hmm. to this or that. And what I was very impressed with Pete is he quickly left that and realized, you're right, we're trying to charge, he calls it charging machine gun nests with Nerf guns. We're trying to fix (laughs) uh, political problems, political solutions. It's not going to work. We have to go to ground and do this in our communities build classical Christian communities up around it, yep. and that's what's going to eventually and slowly right. Right. change things. But isn't that, I mean, that's what the progressives, they've been far more patient. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, if you look at the, uh, you know, the rise of the LGBT, I mean, back to Stonewall, or, I mean, all of these things were, they, mm-hmm. it wasn't, to your point in the cathedrals, it wasn't a single generational Endeavor. It was a vision for something greater to come that was going to maybe not happen in your own lifetime. And I'd throw a, sh- a quick shout out to donors. Yeah. Um, yeah, hey, yeah. Those guys who built those cathedrals, there's no carved names in the sides of those rocks, right? If you go <laughs> into those things, that we don't have, you know, you go onto a college campus, uh, every building's named for whoever gave the building, right? Right. right. The, the medieval donors were you know, <laughs> even much bigger when you consider the size of these cathedrals and what it took to build them. And they realized that they were giving to something eternal yep. and important. Yep. And it just, that's what we need do, donors to do is just step up and uh, help fund this, help fund their grandkids going to these schools, yep. help uh, build buildings for these little upstart classical Christian schools, whatever they can do. I think that's one, you know, one aspect of it. Um, and I think the other is um, we just have to keep challenging parents to take back, I mean, one thing the progressives were able to do in 1915 is seize control of the purse, right? They had the tax base for all of the school systems in the country. Now, they largely built it up. If you look about the um, amount of money spent on school in 1900 versus now, it's even in same-day dollars, it's a very different, um, I mean, yeah, investment. But once the progressives had control, they kept upping the money, and that's why they control so much. 
Right now, though, we've got to remember is over the same period of time, we've become immensely more wealthy. So people in 1915, if you think you can't afford private education, uh, look at what families were living with in 1915. Just go buy a house that was lived in by a regular family in 1915, right? If it hasn't been added on to, you're going to wonder how in the world you change your mind without walking outside. Right. Um, we just got to go back to realizing we have assets just like we have limited assets, just like they had limited assets. We just have to be set about our task. Yeah. So are there other, so to the, to the idea of the field guide in the book, are there other just real specific suggestions, especially for parents as they're considering? Well, there's a description at the end of the second section on what is classical education and how do you recognize it when you see it, hoping to help parents uh, walk into schools and make a judgment on their own as to whether, I mean, there's a lot of different schools that may claim to be classical, are they really classical, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then at the end, it's just basically pull out, find like-minded people, join forces and start a school if you don't have one nearby. If you got one nearby, get into it, yeah. but don't leave uh, your kids at the door. Right. Uh, be involved in the community of the school because that's as much, you and I both know this, we, our yeah. kids went to the same school, the same yep. community. That school community is what's going to, right. uh, schools cannot operate outside the church and the family right. and the community, right? So you've got to address all of them. Well, and there's no question that's part of, as we've talked about many times on the podcast, I mean, you know, when you look at statistics of success, the kids have come through the process and they continue to walk with Christ, they continue to know who they are and whose they are, there is no question it is a corollary directly back to parents and church. I mean, so these things are, all have to work together in tandem for sure. Um, what about, you know, I guess that kind of the other progressive takeover has obviously been in technology and media. And I, I just, I think about, you know, if we can, if we get in this battle, if we can win back our schools, we are winning back the 745 to kind of three o'clock window. And assuming we've got parents that are on board and churches on board, I mean, what what's this, if the progressives, I mean, they've taken over technology and media. I mean, that's been part of the, the larger counter narrative that's, you know, so like the one-two punches, they took over the schools and then after school, they've taken over everything you hear and everything you see. Yes. So what, is that the next book you're writing? <laughs> <laughs> no, you can write that one. The Battle for the, uh, the American Device or something. Yes, yeah, yeah. You're, you, you <laughs> have that subject in uh, better in hand than I do. Um, yeah, technology, I mean, we, we're up against 100 challenges. Uh, what they say always is, right, every great journey begins with the first step. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think if we can win the battle for the American mind, we effectively are going to have a stronger countermeasure to the battle over technology? Because oh, just, yeah. yeah. I mean, what you have to do, I mean, you go to most classical Christian schools, you won't find the computers and the iPads, right? Um, you may find a few that are used for very specific purposes, but by right. and large, you right. try and keep it's it out. Center, right. But the phones, they keep walking in with the students. The schools can't really deal with that. That's what I meant about we need a partnership with parents, churches, and the school so that everybody's on the same page. We're yeah. not going to plug our kids in and let the world feed them yeah. a story. We're going to give them free minds. And we're going to do that by reading great books. And some of those great books might be on a Kindle. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it's not that technology is inherently bad. It's just that it tends to slide downhill right. into the wrong places. Well, and back to the core of the whole talk here. If, if, if the progressives can control the minds and hearts, if we can win that back, then it's going to re, it'll give them an internal compass to make decisions about everything in their life, which is really what yes. we're after. So, Definitely. well, David, thanks so much. I need a lot to do. It's a big conference going on. Uh, the book, The Battle of the American Mind, Uprooting a Century of Miseducation. Um, 
that uh, the book is available, I guess, everywhere. Yep. Harvard's at posted. this point. Yeah. I even saw it at Costco. Wow, Costco selling it. That's really encouraging. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm buying my uh, my 400 pounds of tomatoes. I will. Uh, yeah, you don't even book. have to buy it in bulk. They'll sell you They'll one s- of them you don't for have 17.99. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You'll be there to sign it. Seriously, David, this is a, a wonderful gift to the movement and appreciate your time and all the work you've done. I wish you the best and hope this book um, exceeds expectations. Well, in every way. the feelings mutual, Davies. I appreciate what you do on Basecamp. Thanks for all your work. You're and welcome. We'll keep, keep plugging. Keep going. All right. Thanks, David. Hey, Basecamp Live listeners. This is Hannah, Davies' daughter here. Thank you for tuning into this episode. I can confidently say that my kindergarten through college classical Christian education has become a critical part of my life. It formed and trained me to be a strong leader, to love God. And now as a married young adult, it's really created a foundation for me to go out into the world, a world that's getting crazier by the day. So thank you for listening to this podcast. It's absolutely critical what's being discussed here. If you could take a moment and send an email to info at basecamplive.com. Let us know where you're from where you're listening, what's on your mind. We're so grateful that you're part of this Basecamp Live community. Thank you for being here. Please do tell a friend and give a five-star rating on your podcast listening platform. Thank you so much. See you next time.